says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering those into prisons, both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me and I fell into ground, to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid. But they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said, arise and go into Damascus and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And Father, we just humbly ask in the name of Jesus that by your spirit, you would give us grace and help to be able to receive what you are seeking to say to us this morning as we continue in our worship, Lord. We've prayed, we've sang, we've fellowshiped, Lord. We want to continue in our worship now. And we ask that through the word of God, your spirit would say to us what it is that you'd have us to hear. Bless your word, Lord. You know what we're asking and what we need. And we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Despite man's path or the agendas we may have, the Lord himself can always overrule. In our situations, in our lives, he has that power and sometimes he exercises it to overrule. And that's really what we're going to see in chapter 22 happening in Paul's life. In this chapter, there are, it seems, indications of times when the Lord clearly overruled in Paul's life. Now, for the sake of kind of following the context and the flow of what we're looking at here in Acts chapter 22, the background is somewhat critical. And so in light of that, rather than me summarize, what I'd like to do is if we could reach back into chapter 21, and if you allow me just to read verses 27 down through verse 40, and then flow into chapter 22, it'll be much easier to kind of pick up the context of what was taking place with Paul here giving his testimony to the Jewish people. Verse 27 of verse uh, chapter 21, excuse me, says, Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, and furthermore, has also brought Greeks or Gentiles, the ideas, into the temple, and he's defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had also brought into the temple. And also the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. 
Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was, who had who this was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. When he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And he replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarshish in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean, that is no insignificant city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. So notice, we now come, chapter 22, to Paul about to give testimony to this crowd, who, as you can see, reminding us from last week, was just trying to kill him. This is a crowd that was beating him to death. The Roman police force, if you would, come down from the Antonio Fortress they step in, they intervene, they preserve Paul, and Paul is so concerned about their souls and wants to tell them about Jesus, rather than just be thankful that his life is spared, he asks for the opportunity to give a few words to this crowd that was just seeking literally to pummel him and beat him to death in the midst of this riot, which brings us now to chapter 22. Paul speaking to them in the Hebrew language, chapter 22 says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Now, take notice, despite their accusations of Paul, which were false, that he had brought Gentile people into the court of the Jews and defiled their holy place, despite their mistreatment of Paul, beating him senseless, trying to put him to death by beating him to death. Notice, Paul does not allow his emotions to overrule in this given situation. If you look at what Paul does here, here are people who treated him like an enemy and he speaks to them, you notice in verse 1, with family terms. When Paul's being beat to death and pummeled out of false accusation, one would expect him probably to use a few different starting words when he has an opportunity to speak. Something like, you scoundrels, or how dare you. I mean, but what does Paul do? His first words are endearing family terms. He says to them, brethren and fathers, can I speak to you for a moment? And this amazes me. He uses kind and respectful terms to those who are trying to beat him to death, perhaps because he's trying to diffuse and disarm their anger towards him, to settle them down. And again, the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath and to get them to listen to him. And I have to say, wow, that's real wisdom there. 
And that's also the fruit of the Holy Spirit giving a human being who's probably got a black eye and blood coming out of him and having just been abused and mistreated some real self-control by the Spirit and wisdom to try and make the most of a situation instead of just retaliate. I mean, this is amazing here. Paul says, brethren, fathers, he says, please hear my defense, verse 1, before you now. And that word defense in the Greek is apologia, where we get our English word apologetics. Uh, apologetics, many of us who've been Christians for a little while understand that apologetics is that practice of giving a defense for the Christian faith. That's what apologetics are. And that's what Paul's term is there. He says, hear my apologia, my defense, my apologetic of what's going on and, and hear what I would say. The idea is apologetics is to describe in an effort a reasonable explanation, to give a reasonable explanation for why you believe what you do believe and to present facts and to give proof that's convincing so that people see that the truth that you adhere to is reliable. That's what apologetics is, those who give an apologetic defense of the Christian faith. And so Paul here, he's going to seek to defend the authenticity of Jesus Christ to this crowd that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah that was sent from God, that was prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. He wants to verify by his presentation that it is fully reasonable to serve Jesus as Lord. You know, Peter writing in 1 Peter chapter 3 says to all of us as Christians, but if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and don't be afraid of their threats nor troubled, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So again, we as well at times, hopefully we're not getting beat up like Paul is here. But maybe we're getting beat up with people's words or somebody mocking us at our job or in our school people make a mockery of our Christian faith or whatever and, and they say certain things. Well, the Bible says, look, that's a part of what it means to live for Christ, to experience persecution. But God says, always look as that as an avenue for a potential opportunity to share about Christ. He says, always be ready to give a defense, an apologia, an explanation for why you do believe what you do. Why you hold the hope that you do. Capitalize on those opportunities. That's what Paul is going to do here. So he says, hear my defense, verse 2. And when they heard that he spoke to them, notice in the Hebrew language as he's talking to the Jews, when they heard him speak in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. So Paul begins to address this Jewish crowd in their native language of Hebrew and as a result of that, he's personally connecting with them and he awakens their interest because it says when they heard him speak in the Hebrew language, they became silent and they listened more intently because it piqued their interest. When he's speaking to people, he's using their native language to get their attention. And look, when we speak to people, let me just say it is wise and it is also loving to speak to people in ways that they relate, that they connect 
Paul uses wisdom. He speaks in their native tongue purposely. And as a result of that, they became silent and said, wait a minute, this guy's speaking Hebrew. What does he have to say? And I think Paul demonstrates again here just great wisdom for us that when we have an opportunity to speak to people, whether it's maybe, again, in this given dynamic of a conversational situation in your job place with somebody you're talking to, somebody's mocking your Christian faith, whether you're trying to just share the gospel with people, do evangelize, or maybe you're trying to teach or share with a group of people, let me encourage you, like Paul, consider your audience and speak in ways that connect to people. Speak their language, if you understand what I'm saying. Be relatable. Doesn't mean you need to compromise the gospel. A lot of people think that, oh, in order to relate to people and to relate to the modern society, we have to compromise this. And com- you don't have to compromise, but you can use wisdom and speak to people in a language they understand. Use terms that people can connect with. Relate to people. Consider who you're speaking to. Speak on their level. You know, don't they're using Christian terms. Well, can I share with you my eschatological beliefs regarding the, uh, your what beliefs? Well, you know, the, the eschatology, how Jesus is going to return and come back. Just talk to people that Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? That's what the common man understands. When you speak to children, don't talk to them like you're a college professor. You're never going to connect with them. You need to speak in terms and use analogies and illustrations to connect with them. That's wise and loving. You, you want to speak in digestible terms in ways that people connect with. If you're speaking with somebody you know, in a particular subculture, connect with them if that's their subculture. Speak in ways they can relate to. Jesus spoke in language that people understood. He talked about things in an agrarian society like soil and seed and animals and plowing. You know, if Jesus was around today, you probably would use illustrations from the internet and Google or social media. I don't know, but he would use terms that we could understand, that we relate to. The Bible says that the common people heard Jesus gladly because he spoke in a way that people can connect with. And Paul here very wisely speaks to them in Hebrew, it silences the crowd. Now he's got an open door to have their attention. And he said to them, verse three, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Now that was a Roman colony. So Paul begins to give testimony. He says, look, I was born among a Roman colony, which was heavily influenced by the Greek culture. Now in Paul saying that, He's already piqued the interest of the Hellenist Jews, which were the Jews who embraced Greek culture and lifestyle, though they were Jewish. And then Paul in his next breath goes on, verse 3, to say, But, however, I was brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, where they were at, at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our fathers and the law. So Paul informs how years later, however, he was brought up in the city of Jerusalem itself, the epicenter of of Judaism, where the temple was, likely somewhere around his adolescent years, Paul was brought or sent, excuse me, to Jerusalem to be trained. And he says, I actually learned, had the privilege to learn at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel himself, who was one of the most highly esteemed Jewish rabbis in Israel's history. And Paul says, look, I was taught strictly the ways of the law of Moses, the customs, the traditions. I was a student of Gamaliel himself and rigorously studied the ways of Judaism and lived them out 
to the letter. And that's why he says, verse 3, and I was zealous toward God as you all are today. Paul says, I understand your spiritual zeal. I also held the same passion that you did at one point in my life as I studied the same things and adhered to them. He says, anything that seemed contrary to the law of Moses at a point in my life, Paul said, I saw it as something that needed to be eradicated as well because I saw it as blasphemous. He says, I like you was zealous toward God. I mean, that's kind of pretty kind of Paul. They beat him up. We were pretty zealous towards God. But Paul says, I understand where you're coming from. Because at one point, he says, having been trained in that way, I felt like that anything that was contrary or seemed contrary to Moses' law or the traditions of our fathers, he said, I felt like it was blasphemous and it needed to be eradicated because it was a threat to our beliefs. Interesting. Paul took this abusive beating in some way, you might say, with a level of understanding because Paul never lost touch with his own past before he came to Christ. Paul was in some ways able to take this abusive beating from these zealous religious Jews at this point because he kept aware at one time he was blinded himself spiritually and he didn't see things clearly and he had behaved as they had. That's what he's going to go on to say. Look what he says, verse four. I persecuted this way. We've talked about before. That's a reference to Christianity in the ancient culture. I persecuted this way, the way of Christ, to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. So Paul recounts his religious zeal that once made him a strong enemy of Christianity. He says, at one point, I as well viciously sought to destroy anything and anyone that had to do with the way of following Jesus Christ. He would mistreat and condemn and cause suffering to any follower of Jesus. We saw back earlier in the book of Acts before Saul was converted and became Paul the apostle. It says he was breathing out threats and murders against the disciple of the Lord. And it did not matter who it was in his rage toward Christianity. Paul would arrest and imprison anyone. He says, binding and delivering into prison men and women. I didn't care who it was, Paul says. I was relentless. Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter one saying, you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. His only intention was just to put to death anything that had to do with Jesus Christ. He goes on, verse five, as also, he says, even the high priest bears me witness. They can testify, he says. And all the counsel of the elders from whom I received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem in order to be punished. So Paul says, look, if you don't believe my testimony, he says, ask your own religious leaders. He says, the high priest, ask the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling council, he says, they can tell you what I once was like that I even got, he says, official documents from them. Letters from them, official documents, in order to go on a manhunt to find any disciples of the Lord Jesus and to do whatever I could. He says, I would go, he says, and when at one point, he says, verse 5, all the way far as north as Damascus, searching like on a manhunt to eradicate any disciple of the Lord to find someone who was a follower of Jesus and to arrest and bind them, he says, and bring them back here to our city of Jerusalem where the temple was so that we could punish them 
for following Christ. And Paul just recounting how he himself was once in that angry, relentless condition, just a destroyer of anything he could find that had to do with the church. Misharm, mis, you know, treating and harming Christians and being brutal in his treatment. And here's the thing, as Paul's recounting his testimony, going on of his conversion, yet it's in that harmful, arrogant, rude, rebellious condition, not only just rejecting Jesus himself, but doing everything he could to refuse anybody else from following Jesus it's in that condition, folks, remember that Jesus graciously intervened in the Paul's life. In that condition. Not when he was starting to get his act together. Not when he was gradually warming up to Jesus. It was when he was at his absolute worst. When he was completely anti hateful of anything to do with Christianity and the church, it was in that condition that Jesus graciously intervened to humble and break him and turn him around. Paul now is going to recount his testimony of his own encounter with the Lord and how that happened. He rehearses it, even as we saw it back in Acts chapter 9. Here he repeats it once again. He says, verse 6, Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus, again, with those letters to go persecute more Christians, at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So the risen Lord Jesus now shines his glory from heaven on this day, this appointed day for Paul to change, stops him dead in his tracks, and Jesus actually reveals himself to Saul of Tarsus, who we now know as Paul, in a direct personal revelation. You see what it says there in verse 6? It says, at noon on that day, again, when the hot Mideastern sun is at its absolute brightest, it's at that point a brighter light than the hot Mideastern noonday sun shined from heaven. He says, it happened as I journeyed. He says, suddenly at noon when the sun was at its brightest, a great light from heaven shone around me. Notice the heavenly glory of Jesus is stronger and more brilliant than even the brightest time of the hot Mideastern sun which we look at the sun and we think, wow, the sun is overpowering in its brilliance and its light. Well, look, the glory of Jesus from heaven made the sun look like just a, a little candle. It, it made it look completely as if it was nothing because that's how brilliant the glory of heaven and our Lord is. The experience with this, it became the point where Paul is a stubborn rebel as we see here is broken instantly and he falls down in submission. He says, verse 7, I fell to the ground when this happened. And then Jesus addresses him directly and he rebukes Paul in a very direct way. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice, why are you persecuting me? Then says, who are you? And he directly says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. But I want you to notice who had Paul been persecuting and attacking and mistreating up to this point before he was converted? Christians, the church. But then when Jesus speaks to him, he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say my followers. He says, why are you persecuting me? 
Why are you doing these things to me? Take notice here that as he was persecuting and attacking Christians, whatever is done to Jesus, Jesus takes it personally when it's done to his followers. He takes it directly personal himself. Jesus so associates himself with his followers that when something is being done to one of his followers, Jesus takes it personal. He says, you're actually doing that to me. Now, that means two things for us this morning. If someone is harming and mistreating you as a believer, rest in this reality. They're not just harming and hurting you. They're actually doing it directly to Jesus whom you represent and whom you follow. And so in some ways, that gives a restful assurance. You know, there are times where You know, over the years, just as a Christian and a pastoral ministry, it happens to, you know, people will, we can do some pretty nasty stuff to you, right? We've all maybe experienced that from time to time. And sometimes there's that tendency to want to retaliate or do something in response or whatever. And, you know, there were times before when I just kind of, you know, got with the Lord and be like, man, Lord, I, I really feel bad for those people. I can't believe what they did to you. I can't believe what they did to you, Jesus. And they're going to have to answer to you for that. And we need to remember that when we're mistreated for righteousness sake. But also on the other side of that, let's also remember the principle in this way that that means that whenever we do something harmful to a follower of Jesus or we do something harmful to the church of Jesus, you better soberly recognize you're doing that to the Lord. And don't think that it's just a trivial thing to do something hurtful or destructive to the Lord's people or to his church and not think that Jesus isn't offended by that because it's a direct offense to him. He says, you're persecuting me, Saul. And Paul in his spiritual experience, notice he's hearing directly from Jesus and he asks this question, verse 8, as he's humbled and broken, I mean, he's just been stripped of his pride. He's, you know, it says he fell down. He's just utterly humbled and he surrenders himself because he realizes with this glory coming from heaven that the one speaking to him is divine. There's no question in Paul's mind here. This is a divine voice coming from heaven. So Paul asks, verse eight, who are you, Lord? He says, and that word Lord he uses there is curios. It means master or ruler. He says, who are you? Master, Who are you, ruler of all? He realized, he sensed in his spirit, this was the ruler over all, but he's saying, but who are you? Who are you that I've offended in his humility and his trembling? And then he hears these words to his question, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you've been persecuting. And I have to wonder in that moment how shocking and overwhelming that must have been to hear. If Paul did not think in that moment, uh uh-oh, oh my goodness, you're Jesus of Nazareth? That's who's speaking to me right now, rebuking me, the one I've so hatefully and zealously opposed? You're the one I've been fighting against and straining against and doing everything in my power to try and stop and resist? And now you're speaking to me how powerful the conviction of sin and personal error there must have been that came over this man's heart in this given hour as he has this encounter with the Lord. But yet, I'll tell you, this was the best day of Paul's life. It was the best day of his life. Though he was humbled and broken in spirit, it was the best day because it was the moment that he realized for himself what a wretch he was. 
and how wrong he had been and how many ways he had offended the very Lord that was keeping his heart beating and the very God that had given him breath in his lungs. It was the moment in his life in the midst of that gripping conviction, he also recognized that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Lord over all and was the Savior that was able to provide forgiveness for his sins. And I'll tell you something, Jesus has a wonderful way of confronting us, does he not, to humble us for our own good. Thank goodness that he knows how to do that in our lives. Verse nine says, those who were with me in that hour indeed saw the light, Paul says, and they were afraid. They knew something was going on, but they did not hear. The term literally in the Greek means they did not grasp or understand the voice of him who spoke to me. So the people with Paul that day on the road, they knew something was happening. They could tell a spiritual experience was taking place, but it says they didn't understand the voice of the Lord or what he was saying to Paul. They heard sound, but they weren't hearing exactly what Jesus was saying to Paul. Why? Because this was an encounter between Jesus and Paul himself. This was Paul's moment with Jesus. It was his conversion experience. It was his own experience. Things were being settled between him and the Lord. That's why he says they didn't understand the voice of him who spoke with me. On that day, I think Saul's trying to, excuse me, Paul's trying to indicate that was something that was happening between me and Jesus. That was my moment when Jesus was speaking directly to me. And let me say by way of application, that is what Jesus wants for each person. Not necessarily that we would experience what Paul did uniquely on the Damascus road that day, but that in some form we would all have our own personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, where we experience his presence and his glory for ourselves, when we hear his voice speaking to us, and when we are confronted by the Lord regarding our own sinful condition before him, and we become aware that he alone is the Savior and the Lord, and we're kind of humbled and broken as the end result. And we recognize our need and we're now open and willing to listen to the Lord for ourselves. It says, verse 10, that Paul in that moment then said, verse 10, what shall I do, Lord? Notice Paul's heart has been changed at this moment. Consider prior to this, what was Paul like? He was this driven man with this agenda of self-serving as his highest motivator. And now look at the change. He lived opposed to the Lord. He was self-governed. Now he humbly submits himself over to the direction of the Lord, taking control of his life. And his words are, after this experience with Jesus, which I believe converted his soul in that hour, what shall I do, Lord? What do you want me to do, Lord? I think here you begin to see in some ways the evidence of spiritual conversion. This is how you can tell a spiritual conversion happened in somebody's heart. Because there's a heart change. There's a transformation of the heart. Paul dethrones himself. He doesn't want to rule anymore. He wants to follow the rulership of Jesus. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do now? You're Lord now. You're in control. What do you want me to do? And I'll tell you, folks, that is one of the clearest evidences that a soul has been spared from their own sin and guilt by the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus that you have that kind of gratitude that you want to serve out of appreciation and that you can tell when somebody's been humbled and they're willing to change and now they're not self-governed anymore but now 
They want to follow the Lord and their desire has changed and no longer is it about what they want to do with their life. Now it becomes, Lord, what do you want me to do? My life's yours. My life's yours, Lord. What do you want me to do? Well, Jesus had a plan for Paul's life and now he's asking for direction. So Jesus is going to give it to him. He says to him in answer, verse 10, arise and go into Damascus and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do notice jesus gives paul one singular instruction he says arise go into the city of damascus and when you get there then you'll be told all things which are pointed for you to do he says do this one thing paul here's not the next 10 steps you're a christian here's the roadmap for the rest of your life he says paul one instruction go to damascus when you get there then i'll tell you what things are appointed for you to do next Notice, he gets one simple instruction to obey. Once Paul obeyed the first thing, more information would follow. Once he did the one thing that Jesus told him to do, he's learning what lordship's about, one step at a time. Do the one thing I'm asking you to do, and when you obey that, I'll give you more information. This is called progressive revelation. This is what keeps a person walking by faith. It's what keeps a person in dependent relationship with the Lord. It's that transition. Saul, before in your past life, you were all about a formula, religious living, regulations, rules. I want a relationship with you where we keep daily, constantly talking. You do one thing I ask. When you do that, I'll tell you the next thing. This is what keeps a person dependent upon the Lord, living in faith, where they progressively get more and more revelation and keeps us living in that way. Look, if, if the Lord gave us too many details, not only would we probably freak out, but we would wait till we were done the next 10, 12 things before we ever checked in with the Lord again. The Lord wants a relationship. So oftentimes this is how he leads us to walk with him. He gives us one step. He says, you do this one thing. I want you to do this. Once we do it, he tells us something else. But it's what keeps us living by faith. It's what keeps us dependent upon him. It's the way that the Lord leads us in our lives. Go to Damascus. You'll be told what you're appointed to do. And Paul says, and since I could not see for the glory of that light, he had been blinded by it, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. So the brilliance of that glory that came from heaven, it actually temporarily blinded him because it was so bright it damaged his physical vision and now look as he has to go to damascus he can't even see how to get there it says in verse 11 he literally had to be led escorted by the hand of someone else to make it to the city of damascus here's this strong stubborn man and now look he's humbled like a little child someone's having to lead him by the hand now being escorted like a blind person and he's utterly humbled. But you know what? He's not concerned because all he wants to do is whatever Jesus tells him. And that pride's been just destroyed. And all he cares about is I don't care if I have to be humbled. I don't care if I need to be led by the hand. I just want to obey the Lord. He told me to go to Damascus. I don't care what it takes. I'm willing to humble myself. Would you lead me by the hand into the city? Because I just want to obey Jesus. And I'll tell you folks, how beautiful when a person's pride is forsaken and all they desire to do in humility is whatever it takes to obey the Lord. I don't care what it takes. Just want to obey the Lord. And how beautiful Paul being led by the hand now comes into the city 
In verse 12, he says, And a certain man, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. So Paul recounts, as we saw in Acts 9, how this man, Ananias, a Jewish man of good reputation and also a disciple of the Lord, is sent to Paul in Damascus to pray over him and to give him instruction that he might receive back miraculously his sight. Remember, Ananias was hesitant at first. He says to the Lord, Lord, do you remember who that guy was? You want me to go pray for him? How do I know this isn't just a hoax? And the Lord reassures Ananias. He says, go, he's been converted. And Ananias comes and shows tremendous grace to Paul. He shows the love of Jesus. When he goes, do you see what Paul says? I remember this is what he said to me. He said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. Brother? This is the guy that was killing and arresting all your friends. But he says, you're now my brother. Your past doesn't identify you anymore, Saul. You have a new identity. We're family in Christ now. And he shows the love of Jesus and welcomes him and prays as the account tells us and sight is restored to Paul. This man who had been blinded all of his life spiritually is now illuminated with light and it's the same thing that's happening as his eyes are now reopened and he's able to see clearly at this moment. Verse 14, And then Ananias said to Saul, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one, a reference to Jesus, and hear the voice of his mouth. How beautiful for Paul to be able to hear those words from Ananias. To be able to hear, look, the reason why God's intervened and selected you is because he wants you to know his will. He wants you to know his will. And he wants you to see the just one, the righteous one. He wants you to be able to see Jesus clearly and to know him personally and that you might be able to hear the voice of his mouth, what he would speak to you. And you know what, folks? God doesn't show partiality. And I tell you this this morning, if you're a Christian this morning, that's the exact same reasons the Lord chose you out of this world, did what he had to do to get your attention, to humble you, to break you, and to let you know what it means to see and walk in the light that God wants you to be able to know his will, to know his will for your life. What an encouragement. God wants you to know his will. Oh, I don't know what the Lord's will is. And we almost think sometimes God's like hiding his will from us, like it's a guessing game. You know, <laughs> they're going to figure out my will. He says God chose you because he wants you to know his will. He wants you to know his will. He wants you to see Jesus to see Jesus clearly, to know him personally. And he wants you to be able to hear his voice. He wants to speak to you. He does want you to hear his voice. It's his heart towards you. Verse 15, Paul says, and for you will be, or excuse me, he says, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. In other words, he's saying, look, Saul, you've been chosen to be the Lord's witness now to go out and to speak his word. Not only would Paul speak doctrinally, but even as here, he's recounting his testimony and to give witness of what the Lord had done in his life. And the testimony of a person's changed life is powerful, a very powerful thing. And so he says, the Lord's chosen you, redeemed you, that you might bear witness of this testimony, even as Saul was doing in this moment. Verse 16, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So 
Ananias here exhorts Paul to make his conversion experience with Christ public before others. He says, what are you waiting for? You've been in this house a few days. You've received your sight. You know the Lord's will now. And he says, arise, be baptized. And again, being baptized was that public open confession of the inward experience of salvation that's happened inside. It was the way you identified outwardly what you believed and embraced. It reveals what happened inside of you that no one can see but God. And it's the way we outwardly testify that we identify with Jesus as Lord over our life, that our old life with Christ has died and we no longer want to be that person, that we died together, if you would, even as Christ died for sin. And as we bring somebody out of the water, it's a picture of baptism of, of rising to a new life and the power of Christ's resurrection, that we want to live a new life. And as Christians, we're commanded to be baptized to demonstrate our salvation experience inwardly, outwardly to others, that we fully identify with Jesus. Now, let me just say here, in light of verse 16, be careful that you don't look at this one verse and think that it conveys the doctrine of what some would convey of baptismal regeneration. In other words, that you have to be water baptized in order to be saved or regenerated or converted spiritually. And there are those that try and build a whole doctrine on one verse in the Bible here because of the way the language kind of comes out in the English and they look at verse 16 and say, well, wait a minute. It says there, be baptized, wash away your sins and call on the name of the Lord. So I guess you got to be baptized to have your sins washed away and to be able to actually experience salvation. Well, let me just say, first of all, that would contradict the rest of Scripture. That would contradict the rest of the teaching of Scripture as a whole about salvation and about baptism. The Bible teaches that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. Baptism would be a work that you have to do to be converted. The Bible teaches baptism is an outward profession of the inward work. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ that can cleanse a person from sin, not water. The blood of Christ is what cleanses us from sin. That's why we call on the name of the Lord. What the language is conveying, it's difficult the way it's translated in the English, is that Ananias, as I said, is exhorting Paul to do this publicly, in essence saying, Paul, because your sins have been forgiven by calling on the name of the Lord, arise and be baptized that people may know what's happened inside of you that they may see it openly and real that Saul of Tarsus has been converted and because you've called on the name of the Lord, you now don't want to demonstrate that to everyone around you. Well, after Paul was converted, we know historically that what he did was that for a season of time, he went out into the wilderness for a few years and he tried to process his theology. And he tried to sort out in his mind for about a three-year period out in the wilderness how does this all come together, this Old Testament reasoning with prophecies and how Jesus fulfills all these things? And for years, Paul went off into the wilderness after he first got converted, but then we know he wanted to go back to Jerusalem after his conversion and reach the Jewish people because now he's excited and he wanted to go back and reach the Jews and tell them, hey, Jesus, I see it now, Isaiah 53 and all this, and, and he wanted to share that with them. Which brings us, therefore, to verse 17, as Paul continues to recount a story. He says, so what happened when I then returned here to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance, the term literally means in a state of ecstasy, caught up in the spirit, 
And I saw Jesus saying to me, verse 18, make haste and get out of Jerusalem, Paul, quickly, for they will not receive your testimony. So notice, Jesus, knowing what Paul had a heart to do the first time he came to Jerusalem, after having been in the wilderness, that he came back and he was avid. He wanted to share with the Jews how to be converted by Jesus Christ. He knew that they would not be receptive to Paul when he came and he tried to give testimony of his conversion and tell them that Jesus was the Messiah, that they'd only be angered and opposed it. So Paul says, look, let me tell you what happened the first time I came around. Jesus told me, Paul, get out of here. They're not going to be receptive. He says, Jesus said to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they're not going to receive your testimony concerning me. He tells Paul, look, Paul, I know what you want to do. Stop. I know the path you're on. Don't continue anymore. He says, it, it's not going to work out. Paul, this is not going to work. Move on. Move on. I know what you want to do, but I'm telling you, it's not going to work. Move on. Now, Paul, like you and I, verse 19, wasn't thrilled to hear that, so he said, Lord, don't they know in every synagogue I'm that guy that imprisoned those who believe on you and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed? Remember that story? He says, remember, I was there standing, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. In other words, Paul's basically saying, look, I don't like that you're telling me that I can't do what I'm trying to do. And so he's trying to convince the Lord, Lord, don't you realize with my background and all I did and now I'm converted, I'm radically changed. Lord, with all my background, I would be the perfect guy to reach the Jews. Lord, remember my background? What a powerful testimony of your forgiveness that you can change a person. They know all that I did in my past. They know me from my past. And he's thinking, I would be the perfect guy to reach these people. I'm custom fit for this ministry, Lord. My background makes me the perfect sensible guy for you to do what you could do among the Jews. Look what Jesus thinks about that. Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles, Jesus just overrules and shuts him down. He just overrules and tells Paul, I've got a whole different ministry purpose for you. My plan is not what you suspect it should be, Paul. My plan is I'm going to send you far away here to the Gentiles throughout Asia and Europe to spread the gospel, to plant churches. And Paul was called foremost to minister to the Gentiles because the Lord in perfect wisdom had a great plan for Paul's life. And obviously he didn't need Paul's ideas. And I think this is a good reminder for us because sometimes our ideas, they seem so wise, don't they? It seems so practical. I got these really great ideas and they are really good. And I mean, I should definitely be able to sell the Lord on this because this is a great idea, but it may not be what the Lord intends for us. It may be that the Lord who sees the bigger picture and is always looking down the road and has more wisdom than us, he may want to do something totally different than what we want to do or what we think we should do. It may be, honestly, folks, that maybe he wants to do something even better than what we had in our mind and our plan. I think like Paul sometimes, we can even link maybe our natural backgrounds or our human abilities to what we think we're best suited for in life. That's what Paul's doing. He's thinking, man, I'm... I'm a Jew of the Jews to the core. I, know, I strictly stutter into Gamaliel. If anybody can connect with the Jewish people, I can connect with the Jewish people. 
My natural abilities, my background makes me custom suited for this. And sometimes the Lord may use our natural abilities or our background for us to do something, to serve in some way or to minister to a people group. But perhaps what we think we may be best at honestly may not be what we're best at. Sometimes we just think that way. Maybe the Lord wants to use us to serve or do things in a completely different way. Here's a novel idea that would take us outside of our comfort zone. Maybe he wants to use you to do something you're not naturally good at. Because now you need supernatural grace. Now you need the help of the Holy Spirit. And then people realize, and you realize, this is the Lord. Because this isn't my background, training, pedigree, or natural talents. This is the Lord. And so sometimes the Lord may work in those ways. And since he's Lord, he holds the right to overrule. And our wisdom would be to submit and trust and obey. The ways of the Lord, folks, may not make sense to us. But trust him. Yield to him. Don't try and force your plan, force your idea. Listen to the voice of the Lord. Listen to the voice of the Lord. He knows what he's doing. Well, as Paul says, the Lord told me to go far from here to the Gentiles. Look as our account wraps up, and we'll be brief. Don't worry. Just kind of taking you through the response now to them. No panic. They listened to him until this word. What word? Gentiles? You said that Jesus told you to leave Israel and go minister to Gentile people? The Gentiles? They raised their voice and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He is not fit to live. If he wants to minister to Gentiles, there's the clear indication he deserves to die. And as they cried out and tore their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought to the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted against him. So the commander doesn't understand Hebrew, and he's thinking, I don't know why these people were so irate. I don't understand what he just said to them. But they're throwing dust in the air and ripping their clothes and screaming at the top of their lungs. And he says, we have got to find out what this guy did and what's going on. So he says, Paul needs to be examined under scourging. The Romans perfected this process of interrogating a person by whipping them in a scourging process, even as Jesus was scourged, to extract a confession. They used a whip that had strands of leather usually pieces of bone or glass or lead embedded in it and they would come down over the body as a person was stretched over a pole and it wasn't just the lash down and then they would snap it back and literally rip flesh off of the body it was a real effective way to get somebody to confess and give information so the commander says scourge him let's get a a, a, a confession from him what's going on and as they bound him with thongs paul said to the centurion who stood by is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? That was illegal to scourge or beat a Roman citizen. When the centurion heard that he, that, he went and told the commander saying, take care what you do for this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes, I am. And the commander answered, with a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. So look what Paul does here. He now pulls out his citizenship card, <laughs> this Roman citizenship. And Paul knew the civil laws of the land that it was illegal to do this. And right before they start to beat him, Paul says, can I ask you a question? Is it lawful to, to beat a, a Roman citizen who's never been condemned in court yet? 
And, oh, my goodness, you're a Roman citizen? He says, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. And the commander says, I purchased my Roman citizenship because you could spend lots of money through bribery to buy citizenship. Paul says, I was born a citizen. Now, in that moment, they're intimidated because they're thinking, wow, that's pretty impressive. And this is what calls them all. Verse 29, immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew. And the commander was also afraid and found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him. So the next day he wanted to know for certain why was he accused by the Jews. He released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So the commander releases Paul from the shackles, but he still wants to know what Paul has done. He says, look, you need to appear before the religious ruling council, which in chapter 23, Paul will give his defense then to the religious ruling council. But Paul, again, is spared from this brutal beating, which could have resulted in his death by the Lord. And how is he spared? Can I bring to your attention? By utilizing his Roman citizenship. Now, how did Paul get his Roman citizenship? The Lord. Because the Lord, who controls all things, allowed him to be born a Jew in the city of he was born in so that he might have Roman citizenship so that he might have that, if I could use the word trump card, in his back pocket for decades and decades and decades for that very moment so that something from his past experience could be used in that present hour to work out God's good purposes for his life. Look, folks, let me say to you this morning, you never know what the Lord may use from your past today, tomorrow, or in your future. God's very, very resourceful. It's called providence. He always sees down the road. He always sees down the road and he never lets things be for nothing or go to waste. He overrules in order to work all things for the good to those who love and are called according to your purpose. And he can take things from your past and my past and hold them and hold them and hold them and hold them and he's going... On this day, on the calendar, that thing from his past, from her past, I am going to use it in such an incredible way. I'm going to overrule and it's going to be incredible. What a wonderful thing the Lord's able to do. Why don't we stand together? Let's pray.